0: Hello and welcome to Sip Sip Hooray, the podcast for wine lovers, the wine curious, and people who want to know the stories behind the label. Over the years, Mary Orlin and I have found that as much as we love wine, what we enjoy even more are the fascinating and inspiring people connected to the wine industry. On today's show, we're proud to be joined by a vintner we know you're going to love. Sure, her wines are fantastic, but her story is one of a kind. She's Iris Rideau, a trailblazer and a visionary. In 1997, Iris became the first African-American woman to own a winery in the U.S. But that isn't the beginning of her amazing story. In fact, the winery, well, that was a retirement project for her. Iris's entire adult life has been about bravely breaking barriers and boldly doing what no one thought was possible. Her story is uniquely American and incredibly inspiring. And we can't wait to talk with her. We are the two Marys who like to eat, drink, and be merry. I'm
1: Mary Babbitt. And I'm Mary Orlin, Iris Duplantier-Rideau. Life is full of firsts and breaking glass ceilings. She's been a badass in the insurance world, in finance, in politics, and wine. She's recently released her memoir from white to black one life between two worlds and Iris can add talented writer and accomplished storyteller to her list of accomplishments. Um, The book grabs you from the first sentence. It's just full of stories that keep you turning the page and we are so excited that Iris is joining us today.
0: Iris, we're really glad to have you. Thanks for being here. Well, thank you to both of
2: you. It's really my pleasure. And it just feels like it's so comfortable.
0: And I've met two new friends today. Yay! Oh, (laughs) Oh, that's a win in my book. I love that. Yes. Well, you know, we called you a trailblazer in our intro. That's a big moniker. How does that term sit with you? Is that a lot of responsibility on what I perceive are not enormous shoulders? You're not a huge woman, but you sure carry a lot. uh, And and your life experience would leave one to believe otherwise that you can those shoulders can handle anything.
2: Yes, they can. They started off at ten years old and younger, uh, handling the world actually for a little girl, and um, and I think that's what made them so strong. Hmm. In spite of the fact that I'm only five feet tall,
1: are you five oh, feet? Really? Tall? <laughs> I, I wouldn't have imagined that. I'm picturing much taller.
2: <laughs> uh, I know everybody's surprised when they meet me. It's like this little woman that's mighty. You're
1: sm- you're small, but small but
0: mighty that's right but yeah a lot of firsts in your life is that was that intentional or is it just kind of how you operate i think that it just
2: evolved Mm -hmm. over the years i think i think the important thing that i've learned from life is that it's essential that you stay open to life and uh, be willing to take risks and chances and continue on Accepting the next thing that comes along, and as a, as a challenge, and I always say that um, that adversities can bring you down, or they can lift you up. It's really up to you as the individual what you want to do with your life.
1: And Iris, you just go for it. You you seemingly through all your stories have no fear. You don't take no for an answer.
2: That's what I say all the time. Um I really when I'm giving advice to young people the first thing I say is never accept no for an answer.
0: It is not an answer. It's, it's not supposed to even be in your vocabulary. So but when you're young it's so easy to be intimidated by a no. Oh absolutely.
2: Absolutely. Um and you find yourself caving into that mm-hmm. and giving into that at some point in time. However, um I also recognize that I in that in that moment when I'm feeling insecure I'm talking primarily now as a child mm-hmm. um, I found a way to save myself and um, it started with um uh, as you as you've read in the book probably that it started with learning how to meditate without even realizing I was meditating Hmm. Mm -hmm. and because back in those days, there was no such thing as therapists or uh, anyone that you could go to for counseling other than, of course, if you're crying, your mom will console you, but it doesn't solve, she doesn't know how to solve the problem. And um, because, you know, we're all different and our parents are parents and they're human beings as well with their own limitations. And it may not necessarily be what you need at the time. Um, they're consoling. And for me, it was always, it always seemed to be that. It always seemed to be that I needed to find a way to solve my own problems from the very
1: beginning. Sure. Well, you talk about saving yourself in the book several times. And um, it really goes back to the environment you were brought up in, in New Orleans, in the Jim Crow South of the 40s. And um you would pass blanc um, mm-hmm. you say to say to save yourself from all the injustices that um, when you are perceived white versus when you're perceived black yes. so talk talk about that because that really shaped your life didn't it
2: it certainly did as a matter of fact i i think that's really what created the, the real foundation for my drive uh, determined never to go back to the South and be treated the way I was treated at such a young age. I um, So I'm Creole, um, as you know, by culture and, and um, heritage, and which means that uh, as Creoles, we were, um, well, most of my family looked like me, um, blonde, light eyes, and light, very light skin. And... Um, uh, we were determined to uh, save ourselves from Jim Crow and those harsh rules of oppression. So we would pass for white or blanc, as you said. Um, and um, I experienced the difference uh, between the races and, um, and the harshness of
0: those laws. Was there guilt involved with passing as white? Or was there was that a strange transition for you to like, okay in this setting, I'm going to be white?
2: Yeah, that's exactly what happened. Mm. My grandmother always lived as white, even though she was Creole with African uh, ancestry. Uh, My mother, uh, on the other hand, uh, lived as black, loved black people, had black friends and of course, Creoles. But um, my grandmother uh, insisted on passing for white. She lived with white, and she taught me how to live as white. So when I would go out with her, I experienced all the privileges of being white, and um, and when I went out with my black cousins, uh, I experienced all the oppression of having to step off the sidewalk. Sometimes they forced us to kneel, which meant we were kneeling. Really? Oh, oh yeah. Uh, we had to keep our heads down so that not even our eyes could touch them. That's how serious the rules were and how strict they were.
0: And just the, the denial of, I think it's, we, we forget what our country went through and how the oppression that, uh that African-Americans faced, people of color faced in the yeah. South. And I mean, the, de- the denial of basic human rights, the legislating that Blacks were second-class citizens and, and, as you said, not even worthy to make eye contact with a white person.
2: Exactly. Yeah. It, it was such an extreme rule. Uh, I think I mentioned to you, uh, well, you've read in the book, um, about the train
1: ride, oh yes, it was like a tale of two train rides,
2: yes, and it was really it exemplified I think the 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 life that I was living sure and um and the rule was so strict uh it it went so far as to say that if a person of color was found passing for white and being in a in the white train car, uh, they could be taken off the train and lynched Oh and and the porters if they knew that we were passing for white and didn't tar- turn us in they too could be taken wow, off. wow
1: so they were at risk wow at risk, yes so um but so you open your memoir with the story of the um train ride to and from los angeles and the radically different experiences you had traveling as white and then traveling as black and that's what took my breath away that whole, that story. Can you just um tell our readers what happened?
2: Yes, well, um, I wanted to come to California. My father lived in California. So that summer when I was 10, uh, I finally convinced my mother to let me go to California uh, for the summer and my grandmother willingly took me and we went as white and we experienced all the luxuries of being um, on the white train. Cars are in the white train cars, I should say, and um, going to the dining room. Beautiful dining room, hallways, mahogany walls, and red drapes and carpet. And it was just—I can see it to this day. Tablecloths are all white, and uh, bud vase at the window of every <laughs> table. And uh, she would she would comb my hair and Shirley Temple curls and. I put on my Mary Jane Patton leather shoes, <laughs> go down to the dining car. My and goodness, I felt like I was Cinderella, you know. Yes, right? yes. And so um, it was wonderful. And I spent the summer with my father, and um, and unfortunately, my grandmother decided to stay. She did not want to go back to New Orleans, and I had to come back uh, on the train with my mother's black girlfriend. Mm. But we were we were. Um, assigned to the Negro car, what it was called. And that Negro car was dark and dingy and dirty, and we couldn't leave the car. We sat on hard wooden benches that didn't recline. We slept there, ate there, and of course we had to bring our own food, which was generally fried chicken in a box. And um, two and a half days of that, Set me into PTSD.
1: sure okay. uh, why wouldn't
0: it yeah well and that's yeah. that's the going from white to black and having these two worlds exist within this one child you were still a girl at the time and yes. the inner conflict that must have created for you and um and then but also the um the drive to change your life i mean that that's where it started you i think you got back home to new orleans and decided i don't i need to be in california i don't want to live here exactly right that's exactly what happened and that's what drove me to this that still
2: drives me to this day um sure and, my phone sorry.
1: and sorry and so at age 11 or 12 you were able to persuade your mother to move from New Orleans to California. How did you do that?
0: I nagged her to death. (laughs) As a mother of a daughter, I know that kind of nagging. uh, I don't know know, that she'd get me to move, but I mean, I do. I call her sometimes like a mosquito or a gnat that just won't stop when she wants something. That's
2: exactly what I was. I thought about it that way, but that's a good description. (laughs) Certainly. Yes. And she finally gave in. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did. I nagged it every day. I couldn't stand it. And um, you know, once you experience the luxuries of, of, a, of a life that you're entitled to, and that's the way I always felt, I was entitled sure. to a better mm-hmm. life. Yeah. And she didn't know the difference. And see, that's a problem with harsh segregation—the way that it was in the South. It suppresses people to the point where they don't even recognize the fact that they're being suppressed
0: right so, well and yeah. it's fascinating that you as a young child realized that you were being oppressed and realized you deserved better
2: exactly yes and uh, the oppression is what drove me out of there it really did um and i never looked back i yeah. it was like uh, it it really took me through my entire life uh you know never wanting to go back to the south so mm-hmm. it drove me to the point where i had to be successful in business and even with um, uh, writing contracts with the city of LA, which we'll get into um, every time I've secured a contract, I was worried about losing that contract and I'd rush out and try
0: to get another one. And mm-hmm. I continued doing that for my entire life. Keeping that hustle going. Okay. Absolutely. Well, so it wasn't an instant success for you. So you start out in LA with your mom and I think I remember reading that you uh, worked in the garment industry or basically in a sweatshop sewing. And you're like, I can't do this either. And yeah. that drove you to go to uh, community college or night school. Yes.
2: Yes. I, um, unfortunately I was, um, I was molested as a young child, 13 years old. And, um, and I, uh, started running with the wrong kids. My grades dropped. I found myself pregnant at 15. I had my baby at 16 for my teenage boyfriend and um, uh, found myself working in a sewing factory with my mother. And the day I walked into that sewing factory was like the day I left New Orleans. Never again, I can't stay here. It was like every every inch of my body, my soul screamed, you have to get out, you have to get out. So I immediately enrolled in, a junior college night classes. So I worked at the sweatshop um, for a couple of years and went to school at night. My mom helped me with my baby. She would pick her up. Uh, I didn't even have a car. I had to push my baby in a stroller down the street to the babysitter, get on a bus, go to the sweatshop, work for eight hours, get on another bus, go to junior college, leave that school and at, at the night classes that I was taking, and um, get on the bus and go home. And I did that until I finally graduated. And fortunately for me, I took business courses and I, cause I wanted to be in business. Somehow I knew that. I Well, I didn't have the the business sense at the time. I didn't have that, that image of myself owning my own company. I had a vision of being um, in a front office Uh, As a receptionist, that's what I wanted to be. So, um, the first job I landed was working for
1: an insurance company,
0: Mm -hmm. and
2: the rest is history, as they say.
1: Absolutely. Well, one thing, Iris, that strikes me about you is that you always seem to have been um, guided by your gut. Like you, you just instinctively knew this is not right for me. Whereas I think some other people might feel that but it was like, well, it's all I've got, I've got to keep plugging away with it. I've got to keep working at the sweatshop. What else am I going to do? Right. But you? Um, you have always been guided by your internal instincts.
2: Yes, I call it my higher self. Ah, uh, um, I really believe that um, we all have a higher self, um, a being. A God, a He, or She, whatever you want to call it, but it's it's beyond what you are, who you are. It's bigger than you, and you have to believe in that. And and it's it helps to take away the fears. It gives you a drive, a de- determination to uh, succeed. And uh, and I've always relied on that. And I would always say, I there's no way that I could have done all that I've done by myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I did, but, um, but I did have uh, an internal drive that um, continues to this day. I'm, I'm not, I'm going to be 86 in two weeks. And uh, I'm still going strong, you
1: are still you going. strong. Stop. I think you, I read a quote from you. It's like, you, you can't quit. You just can't stop.
2: I can't stop. I really can't stop. I love driving myself. I love the competition, mm-hmm. especially competing with men.
1: And, um, and, you, and you, you always beat the men. I try. <laughs> I <do. laughs>
0: well, and you clearly love the work. But you know, one of the things, reading your story, Iris, one of the things I truly came to admire about you is that you um you have been such a supporter of people of color. And in fact, and you insured people who were uninsurable after the Watts riots in um, Los Angeles, and you have taken chances on uh, people in the black community when nobody else would. And I just think I'm so, number one, I'm so glad that you were willing to stick your neck out and do that and glad that it, it, it worked and that you proved, hey, these people and their businesses are worthy of our investment. Absolutely. Well, you know, this happened shortly after the Watts riots.
2: And um, when the National Guard came in, they set up boundaries, um, not just around Watts, but this area extended well beyond Watts and into very nice neighborhoods. And and not that Watts is not, especially back then, it was a really nice neighborhood. And the homes that I insured uh, were in those areas. But but the point I'm making is that when the National Guard set up the boundaries, it created what they called redlining. So uh, the people in those communities could not uh, secure insurance, nor could they obtain loans. Hmm. So um, I decided to open my own insurance agency. This was uh, 10 years after I landed my first job as a receptionist. And so in 1967, I opened my own agency. Uh, Hartford Insurance Company was my first appointment. Uh, They knew what I was uh, attempting to do and they were willing to take a chance on me. Well, I proved to them too, that I understood underwriting and rating and I was capable of doing that. And, And and,
1: And this was your first glass ceiling breakage basically that you were the first female black owned insurance company is it in the United States? Um, on the West it, Coast. On the West Coast, yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, so that's that's one big glass ceiling broken. Yes. Yeah. And, and you were really brave
0: to take on uh, clients that other, other companies weren't insuring. I mean, I just think about how young you were and how gutsy. I know. I was still in my 20s, late 20s. <gasps> wow. And it's crazy.
2: It's I, so cool. I, it was pretty... Pretty ballsy of me, if I must say. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but um, but I but the need was there, and I've always been one to try to give back to my community and be mm-hmm. a support um, and a, a bridge, and that's exactly what I was. I would go down to that um, area, Watts and beyond, and um, I had to take pictures of the houses. I started off with just homeowners insurance personal lines as they refer to it as uh, auto insurance and homeowners insurance. And I would go take pictures of the home, write up the application, do the underwriting, drive down to Hartford and sit with the underwriter and convince him that it was a safe thing to do to insure this house. One by one, I did that until a couple of years later, I had a couple of thousand clients. And uh, because they were all If they were able to get insurance at all, it was they were paying three times the premium of the average person Mm. outside the area. So um, um, Hartford was very pleased with what I was doing. And I branched out from that uh, into commercial insurance.
1: Wow. And then you um, also... Because that wasn't enough already for right. you to do <laughs> you, you um you got into securities
2: yes, and- okay, so I'll tell you about that um first of all the um the commercial end of the business uh when I decided to start insuring businesses, there were very few black owned minority owned uh, uh businesses in the this was now in the late sixties and early seventies, still not a lot of businesses to insure. Mm-hmm. And so I, um, I began to specialize in nonprofit agencies like the Urban League mm-hmm. and NAACP and uh, many of uh, through medical school like that. And um, uh, that really launched my, my commercial end of the business career. And uh, from there, um, I bid, I went out on a bid, on a limb <laughs> to ensure a major uh, $50 million uh, program that uh, President Johnson, he was president at the time, it was a war on poverty program. And, um, and throughout the, the entire United States, cities and counties received grants from the federal government to um, improve the lives of minority people. And um, so I was awarded the contract. I wrote the insurance specifications for the program. Um, and so I didn't have much competition.
1: That's uh, one way to, to do that.
2: Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, nobody wanted to actually to write the insurance mm. on Watts. And uh, it was also it covered East Los Angeles and Watts. And so um, I had Very few people wanted to run down there to those suppressed areas. And uh, and so I was the one I said, "Okay, I can do this. And um, so then I caught the eye of uh, then Mayor Tom Bradley. And uh, from there, I started writing insurance for the city of L.A.
1: Yes. And um, that was a huge contract for you when you got that Los Angeles contract.
2: Yes, that was the largest contract awarded to any woman of any color. And so from there, um, I started, uh, actually, Mayor Bradley was beginning his um, affirmative action program, which assisted women and minorities in securing contracts with the city. So he asked me to get involved. Yeah. So that was my uh, giving back to the community. Uh, Yes. And so I assisted Mayor Bradley. And. Uh, city Council people when we had several women, council women uh, and minorities, uh, both Hispanic and black. Um, and I was able to um, uh, prove to them that I could deliver
0: on my, um, my contracts. So what kind of stuff were you doing? Give us an example of the, the ways in which your work with Mayor Bradley helped to change things in Los Angeles and open doors for people. Oh, good question. Um,
2: Well, the Affirmative Action Program was one thing. When we started that program, you won't believe this, but we had a 5% goal for women and a 10% goal for minorities. And we we couldn't meet that. Oh, you couldn't? No. Oh, oh, man. The problem problem was small businesses, doing business with the city, you have to um, obtain a performance bond. Now, getting a performance bond is like, trying to get a loan. So if you don't have collateral, um, you can't secure or purchase a performance bond. So Mm -hmm. the mayor asked me to um, open a a bond guarantee program. The city put up $10 million and I um, hired a um, director for the program that had experience in Running a bond guarantee program, hired him out of um, Oklahoma, and it was a highly successful program. So, the $10 million I did not receive, let me make that clear. Mm-hmm. The city put this into an account that they managed themselves, it was their account. We operated off the interest from the account, which was um, used to put up the collateral that was necessary for the individual women or minority contractors to secure performance bonds so so it was highly successful i had the program for eight years and when i was getting ready to retire uh i refused to bid on it any longer i was actually not bidding on any contracts because i was trying to get out of la (laughs) so um uh when i when i ended the contract i returned the full $10 million. I'd love to say that because we didn't have one loss. Really? That's awesome. Wow. Uh
1: So I know you've had, you had so many successes, but did you ever hear from the people you were helping? Um, did they ever, you know, did you ever get any feedback from the people who you helped to get insured and who you helped through these programs that you were running?
2: I I did. I, I did periodically. Uh, especially after I opened the winery, everybody was like, "Now they know where I am, right?" Yeah. And, um, so they would come to see me, uh, surprise me at my front door, of the winery. Here I am, and um, I'm successful. And it was it was so rewarding. It was just a wonderful feeling of accomplishment to know that I not only became successful myself, but I assisted other people. Uh, And as a matter of fact, my insurance agency is still running. I sold it to two individuals that worked for me. Mm -hmm. Uh, Back in the day, I hired one girl. She was 17 when I hired her. So that was in the late 60s. And um, she and um, uh, a gentleman that was also in my office, um, they bought the broke the agency from me, and it's still going strong.
0: Wow. What and an they, accomplishment. That's And awesome. they still
2: have the clients that I started with. I mean, mm. it's wonderful. Love that for them. Yes.
0: So it's amazing to me. We've talked like I said, you're opening your winery in the San Nez Valley isn't the beginning of your story. That was your retirement plan. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. the fact that we could go, I could talk to you for another couple of hours about your experiences in Los Angeles. Um, and trying to be a, uh, becoming a successful businesswoman, being a change maker down there. I mean, we could go on and on on that, but on the other hand, you have this whole other chapter where you decide to retire, but in true Iris style, you don't really slow down a bit and you open a winery. (laughs) (laughs) Right,
1: right. And, um, And I think Iris, you even say that the winery is the best chapter of your life.
2: Oh, it certainly was. It absolutely was and still is. It's still a part of my life. I uh, Once I sold my home in the winery, I just moved down the street from the winery. So oh, I, you
1: couldn't go very <laughs> far away. <laughs> I, couldn't,
2: I couldn't go far. No, I go uh, at least once or twice a week. Uh, people will call me and ask me to meet them there you know, old guests and friends and cell club members. And I run, get in my car and take my dogs with me. I've got two beautiful little Havanese and um, the little one grew up there. But um, anyway, um, so yeah, it's still, it's still very much a part of my life. When I decided to leave the city, by the way, I failed to mention that I did open a second com- company a securities firm. Right. Uh, specializing in pension planning. So that's really, um, I, and I had that for another, um, I guess, 18 years, um, providing a deferred compensation um, investments to city of Los Angeles employees.
1: Okay. Iris, do you ever sleep?
2: <laughs> you know, it's really hard. It's interesting that you ask that question because <laughs> it's still very hard for me to sleep. I I fall off to sleep immediately because I'm exhausted, right? And mm. five o'clock in the morning, I'm waking
1: up. And
2: um, so, what what do, what do you think I do when I wake up at five o'clock in the morning? You,
1: you start working.
2: No, actually, I do. I you meditate just so I can I can. Uh, I'll, I'll meditate, or I will turn on an audible book. Okay. I love nice. doing that.
0: Yeah,
2: uh, I do too. Uh, it's I love audible books. It really helps you get through a lot of books. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yes, absolutely. Yes,
1: yes, yes. Okay, so, so I, tell us
0: about the wine chapter though. How yeah, did that, that come way. about? All right. So right. um,
1: but first I want to make a comment. Mm-hmm. Iris, you actually started drinking at age seven, didn't you? Yes, I
2: did. Yes, I did. And you know, um, my grandmother, same grandmother, um, she was half Italian. So her grand her father used to make, you know, bread wine. Uh we had another name for it, but I won't use it. But oh. table wine <laughs> uh, okay. but on sunday she cooked for the entire family big dinner and always a pitcher of red wine on the table and the kids got a little glass a little demi glass and um, uh, they probably watered it down but nevertheless that's where i learned to um, pair wine with food if you will mm-hmm. nice. so nice. when i opened my winery that was the only thing i knew to do I um I um I added a kitchen on the back of the house. It was a, a you know, I bought the property. Skipping around a little bit. If I'm going too fast, let me know. But um I I bought a property adjacent to my home property, twenty two acres.
1: Okay, so you bought it you bought this property that had an Adobe a two story Adobe building which is rare and um that had been abandoned for 10 years right correct
2: it had been abandoned for 10 years and it was uh 22 acres adjacent to my home property and um I just fell in love with it I I actually I drove past it for probably three years and finally decided to stop and look at it because nobody wanted it and it was so run down so I um God was in my ear at that time saying to me, stop and look at this property. And um, and so I did. And when I walked in the house, I went, oh my God, I've got to keep this, I have to own it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I purchased it and started a restoration program that took me two years to restore it. And what saved it was the fact that it has a pitch roof because it was built by two Englishmen and a mm-hmm. raised foundation. So it saved the adobe bricks and it's also a Santa Barbara County historical landmark. Nice. With that, I went, of course, this has got to be my winery. (laughs) (laughs) So um, as I got into the restoration of the adobe, I could just see it being uh, my tasting room. So with that, um, two years later, I opened my doors, I planted the, vineyards, both upper and lower vineyards, and built the winery.
1: Okay. Well, first of all, let's talk about the two varietals you planted, because they are near and dear to your heart, and they are also the varietals of the two wines you sent me and Mary to taste. Oh,
2: yes, I forgot.
1: (laughs) Which were delicious. (laughs) Thank you very
0: much. Love them.
2: Didn't you? I just love both of those. Those are my favorite.
0: Yeah, um, but
2: I planted um, but I planted five different varietals on the property. The Viognier, uh, which is one that I sent to you. That's our uh, state Viognier. Uh, it just receives awards every single year. And, and uh, I love Viognier. What we do you, you love about- to
0: plant Viognier in San Ynez Valley? Did I read that also? No, actually,
2: um, I believe Andrew Murray was the first one. Yes. OK, but well, we were the only two at the time. Mm. Totally wrong varietals. Nice. And my vines came from Bocastel, France. So uh, having the vines come from the south of France, really, they say that it starts in the vineyard. You, you know, you can't make good wine with bad grapes. Mm-hmm. So, this this Viognier
1: is gorgeous. It has all that honeysuckle and peach and apricot, nectarine fruit
2: oh, yes a, absolutely it's all but it, has,
1: but it also has great acid it does it's very exactly. well
2: balanced. it's very well balanced it has enough acid to to handle the fruit because it's very fruit forward mm-hmm.
1: um, and it's it's also very perfumey
2: yes yes i i just love it it's like like you said it's anisicle, pineapple peach all of those wonderful tropical flavors
1: so, so you open your winery and there's a line waiting to get in.
0: Yes, I love that story where people had been watching the remodel of the yes. Adobe. So they were really fired up about this uh new winery. Well, also you know, genius. That was a it, genius marketing move.
2: Wasn't that great? I mean it really was. <laughs> I was like, okay, so they they know I'm doing all this work, right? Well and the and the the best part is practically the whole uh valley had at one point in time, walked through that uh, old adobe, looking at it. Several of them wanted to purchase it. They came back and told me they wanted it, but they didn't want to take on such a major project. Mm. And um, so anyway, um, it just needed to be a vineyard. It needed to be a winery. And yes, they they because they were so anxious to see what was going on, by the time I opened my doors, there was just a line of people that just came flooding in and they continued to come. And uh, they would tell their friends about it. Their friends would come. And as I mentioned to you when I was restoring it, I added a beautiful country kitchen on the back uh, because I love to cook Creole food, of course. And every Saturday, I would make a Creole dish, gumbo or jambalaya red beans and rice, crawfish étouffée, something. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. I would grab a bottle of wine from the... From the front bar, and bring it to the kitchen, and feature it with that particular dish. So I was pairing the wine with the food, just like I did as a child at seven years <laughs> old. <laughs>
0: Amazing!
1: Yeah, nice callback. Um, yeah. Well, and I love Absolutely. that you brought
0: some of your Creole soul and spirit to the San Inez Valley, which was probably you know I don't know that there anyone had really done Creole food in the San Inez Valley before.
2: No, no, they didn't. As a matter of fact, um. It was really very uh, refreshing to the Valley. They loved the idea, the concept of having something unique. And they, my friends actually supported me. They sent people to the winery because it was different. I had jazz playing throughout the house. Uh, I would hang Mardi Gras beads on the guests as they left. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> nice. So that now was that- my... That was like my business card, you know? It was yeah. like, and so they'd go out on the wine trail and the people on the wine trail would say, where'd you get the beads from? And then they would come over and it just continued to evolve. Yeah.
1: Like that. And and in your book, you say, well, people would stay. It would come and they would just stay and everybody from all walks of life, all different backgrounds, all different you know, people of color, yes. all of that um but you've also said that and what um we want our listeners to know you were the first african-american woman to own a winery in the united states and you've said i'm the first black winery owner but i don't want to be the last Mm -hmm. so tell us about that
2: absolutely Uh, well Since then, well, first of all, let me just say quickly that um, my winery was always mixed, uh, as you mentioned. And I love the fact that I would see people, white people, black people, Mexican people, Indian people crossing over my tasting room floor to meet someone that they hadn't known, to introduce themselves, and they'd have a conversation. And this is what I wanna say about racism in America. It's highly important for us to get to know each other. It's all about establishing a relationship, talking to each other, getting to know. I would hear people say, they cross the room and say, by the way, where are you from? And they invariably find something in common. Oh, I went to this high school or this college or mm-hmm. something, or I lived in that neighborhood back in the day, you know? And um, so, that's all we need we it's just so need
0: true. to know that we're all the same there's mm-hmm. so much more that unites us than divides us absolutely, absolutely. yes absolutely. yes So and true.
2: how do we solve it if we don't know where it started right how, if we deny the fact that we have the problem we can't ever resolve it right absolutely
1: so also you offered your space for a couple of years for, to the local Chumash Indian tribe to make their wine. And um, Tara, the, the winemaker, um, was um, one of your first Custom Crush clients. Can you tell yes, us about that?
2: Yes, And now she has her own label. I know,
1: Cayman's Two Dreams.
2: Yes, yes. Isn't that wonderful? I
1: know. We have to get her on the pod, Mary. <laughs>
2: oh, you her. absolutely do. As a matter of fact, talking about that... Um, Cassandra um, Wilson um, started a PBS show featuring people of color in the wine business. And Tara starts it off. uh, And the first one is going to be uh, September. Oh, come on, Iris.
0: Um, On PBS in September, though, this September. Yes, yes, yes. But I have to get this date for you because... um, Oh, I think you're featured in this thing too, aren't you? Yes I close out the series Woo-hoo! Kind of cool
1: nice
2: very nice yes,
1: that's really fun. um
2: so I'm really excited about it um,
1: I will um post a link to that in our show notes that are you can find on our website.
2: Yes, it's September the fifteenth the first one on tBS and um so Tara will be the first one she and her wife um. Uh, and I think that and she's also a winemaker. Uh and they're doing beautiful, beautiful wines. I'm so proud of her. And they yeah, she started at my winery.
1: That, that's awesome. Cool. That's Isn't that awesome. great? Yes. yes. Um so when you started your winery, you also had a um a string of winemakers, but your your um opening winemaker was Rick Langoria, a legend in Santa Barbara wine country.
2: Yes. I was very, very fortunate to be able to have Rick pick off my winery for me because he was an accomplished, is an accomplished winemaker. At the time, he had been at Ganey for 12 years. Mm-hmm. And he had started making his own label. He needed a place to make his own wines, and I needed a winemaker. And we were introduced. And um uh Eventually, I said yes. It took me a while because I didn't really know what I was looking for in the way of a winemaker. I, you know, I didn't know anything about the wine business other than running <laughs> businesses successfully. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, Rick came along and he and his wife um, became very good friends. And I finally, when we finally decided to make it happen, I made a gumbo at my house and he brought over a bottle of Blue's Cuvée with a black guy looking like BB King with a guitar oh, on yeah. the label,
1: <laughs> nice. and it was a perfect pairing. Oh, absolutely! <laughs> so, so
2: with that, we said, okay, this is this has got to be the right thing to do. And so he was very instrumental in selecting the grape varietals. I always give him credit for that because um, he certainly knew a lot more than I did about the wine business. So um, yes, I did. I had um, since Rick, I had three other winemakers, uh, all of which were males. And I have nothing bad to say about winemakers, male winemakers, I love them. I love men, (laughs) Uh, but um, I wanted a woman. Mm -hmm. I wanted a woman winemaker. I wanted to give, again, a woman the opportunity uh, to be the winemaker. And so I finally hired um, a woman in 2014, And she's still there to this day. Her name is um, St. John, Adrienne St. John.
1: Tell Mm -hmm. us about her.
2: Well, oh, that's that's another interesting story. Back in the day, um, women were really not recognized as winemakers. They were actually called lab girls because they had the chemistry background, and they worked in the labs because you have to have chemistry right. in winemaking. And so they were referred to as lab girls. And to me, it was so insulting.
1: I agree because I have a chemistry degree. I know what it takes to get that.
2: Absolutely. I mean, that's uh, that's a determination, a drive, a, a skill. Uh, hours and hours uh, of in-classroom I mean, working hard to get that type of degree. And so uh, Adrian came with that. And um, and the first words out of her mouth was, I want to make the wines that you like. And I <laughs> thought, okay, I'm hiring this. People. You're hired, <laughs> hired. Yeah, and she did. And, and I would always say, you know, it, it's not about my palate. It's about my client's palate. They're coming... Mm-hmm. To taste the wines and enjoy the wines that they enjoy, not what the winemaker wants to make.
0: Yes. Right. So
2: that, I was always insisting on that. And I found that in Adrian.
0: Iris, I'm curious, you know, you started the winery in 1997. Yes. How has the wine industry changed and we were talking about, you know, some of the first and you being the first African-American owner of a winery Mm -hmm. in the US wanting to hire a a female winemaker. So what has changed since 97 and what obstacles to people of color uh, do women still face in the industry from your perspective?
2: Well, I'll address women first. What we're finding that like uh, Allen Hancock College um, is one of the major universities here that has a viniculture program. And most of the people that are graduating from that course are
0: women. Really? Yes. Hey, that's terrific.
2: Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. So we're going to have more women winemakers than men. And actually, um, they'll probably want to slap me for saying this, but um, we have a better palate than men. I agree. You do. <laughs> I, mean, I, think, I think it comes from cooking. Yeah. I, 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 you know, I'm talking, you know, centuries of cooking uh, because that's what we did, right? And
1: we, I also believe women have a better sense of smell and that is so integral in wine.
2: Absolutely. My mother used to always complain about my nose because I was always complaining about odors and smells mm. and like that. And I found that I had a nose and a palate for Tasting wines and knowing what it needed, what what next to to blend with it, you know. Uh, yes, and uh, I love that part of the business—just blending the wines with the winemaker. I don't make the wines, but my winemaker did, and she would come over uh, with cases of wines, samples from the winery that were taken from the barrels or from the t- stainless steel tanks and
0: we would sit and blend for hours just okay. prior to bottling so that was wonderful so wine. yes okay so more women are getting into wine yes. and being embraced by the industry and welcomed now what about people of color
2: well we i'm surprised myself to see how many people we have all over the country um i um attended a, a conference by the Hugh society last year oh nice uh-huh and um hundreds of black people hispanic people women were there winemakers sommeliers hmm. winery owners uh, all anxious to put their mark on the industry and uh, it's just wonderful to see across the nation we're yeah. seeing black people women uh, people of all colors, um, like Tara, uh, yes. you know, and so it makes me feel very, very proud. And because I am now recognized as their trailblazer, mm-hmm. uh, I do have a certain responsibility to support them. Um, and whatever I can do, um, I'm going to do. I love right, that.
1: because before you that- you know, people of color didn't see people who looked like them in the wine industry.
2: Absolutely not. As a matter of fact, I would always say when uh, when a person, a white person would come to my winery and see black people in my tasting room, if they didn't like the idea, they didn't come back. And that was perfectly fine with me. I was just saying you didn't mind
0: a bit. (laughs) No,
2: not at all. Because it was people that were willing to be together, wanting to be together. Right. You know? Yeah. And so it made my winery work. It was probably one of one of the top five wineries, five wineries in at the time um, to be recognized as the winery to go to, a musk go to winery. Nice. Mm-hmm. Well, so
1: the Viognier we tasted was made by Adrian because it's yes. a twenty eighteen. But you also sent us a twenty fourteen Syrah, which is. Mind-blowingly amazing, and um it, you were involved in this. One.
2: Yes, yes, that was my last label that I, I was involved in making. We and, should tell folks that you sold the winery.
1: Yes, in 2016.
0: Oh yeah, our listeners.
2: Yes, yes, and they bought the winery because they love the wines, and they kept the winemaker and the style of the wines. As a matter of fact, um, um. Uh, Martin Gautier and his wife bought the winery uh, young family, loved them. Uh, they were perfect for the winery because um, they didn't want to change the name. You know, um, the Cajuns came from Canada, so they are French Canadians. And so we have a history going back to um, as Cajuns going back to Canada. And so there's a river uh, in Canada called the Rideau River. And so th- that also was like um, something that was a sign for both of us. that line oh, nice. sign of work. Uh-huh. Yes. So they kept the name, they kept the winemaker and um, they actually just bought a, a 50 acre property uh, in the valley here and they're planning all Rhone varietals on that property as well.
1: Oh, love that. They kept the well, love of Rhone as well. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, That's so great. now they're going to be making a uh, Chateau du Planchet today, that would oh. be a state driven wine.
1: Fantastic. So they will so keep accurate. your they will keep your legacy going into yes. the future.
2: Yes, because that, of course, as you know, is my maiden name, my family name. Right. Mm-hmm. And so they're keeping that that particular blend. Uh huh.
1: Oh, so let's talk about this Syrah because oh, it's um. I know you are a big fan of Chateauneuf de Pop.
2: Yes, yes. That was the first one. That was actually, I, I tasted a 1989 Chateauneuf um way before I started, well before I started the winery. And um, so, what I was doing, uh, because I had to commute back and forth from, from the Valley to Los Angeles, um, when I was in the Valley on weekends, because I was still running my two companies in the, in the city, uh, I would go wine tasting. What else do you do in the Valley? But wine tasting. <laughs> And so um, I tasted a shepherd of the plant and I went, oh, my God, what is this? <laughs> <laughs> and so um, I um, fell in love with it and I went, this is what I want to plant. And it turns out that um, my particular property was the perfect mi- microclimate mm. for grown varietals. Wow. And so I planted uh, five acres of the estate syrah that I sent you. Up on top of the hill, that was all Syrah, and in the lower uh, valley there, um, I planted uh, Bionier in the front of the property, six acres of it because I had to have a lot of it, <laughs> and um, Grenache, Mavédra, and Roussan. Mm. And my Roussan, by the way, won Best White Wine in Wines of the World in two thousand four.
1: I know. I read that. That's impressive, and I love Roussan. So this Syrah is very classic to me it's a 2014 it has it's i you know it, there's really not a lot of age on it it's holding up so well and it's got that earthy mushroomy mm-hmm. um pepper-y, pepper-y. peppery oh definitely absolutely and it just uh-huh. fills your mouth with a burst of blackberry fruit mm-hmm. and it's just gorgeous Thank you. And that's yeah.
2: exactly what I love. I love the big red wine that fills your mouth, hits the top of your roof of your palate and just explodes and yeah. then finishes
0: <laughs> soft tannins. I
2: don't like harsh
0: tannins. Right. I think that's the lovely surprise of it. It's got that those um, those big, vibrant flavors. And yet it, there's not a cutting edge to it. It's got a soft touch and a soft yes. finish. Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm great i'm so glad you guys enjoyed it very much and thank Uh, you for sending
0: them to us thank you for this opportunity well, I'm I am dying to know what is next for you. You're eighty gonna be eighty-six years young yeah. and uh you know, you've got your you you released your uh, memoir on Juneteenth, which I thought was really uh, special also and significant. And so you're promoting the book. You've got the PBS special thing coming up in September, yeah. and um are you already planning the next chapter or are you just gonna arrive with this one for a little bit? <laughs>
2: well i'm planning the next chapter of course <laughs> of course
1: you are because you can't stop <laughs> i
2: can't stop i really really can't but um but i am on a book tour right now doing book signings which is a lot of fun and um i'm kind of all the wineries in the valley are saying yes to me for book signings, which is really sweet. Nice. very nice well it's that speaks clear. volumes
0: about the kind of uh colleague you've been in the wine world and the kind of friend you've been to other vintners so good for you
2: they're all my friends the the entire valley i can't go anywhere in the valley just yesterday we were having brunch and somebody uh, twice somebody came up and said hi to me so it's wonderful i love my life and um so what am i i'm going to napa um in two weeks actually i'm going for my birthday september 16th and um Theopolis Vineyards. Uh, oh, yes. Black-owned winery. Uh-huh. Woman winery. She's an attorney. I'm very proud of her. She's doing beautiful wines. I'm glad to hear somebody say yes.
1: I, I have been a fan of Theodora's for many years. And again, Mary B., she's another person I want to try to get on the pod. Let's do it.
2: Yes, you should. You absolutely should. She's amazing. So she's having a harvest party, and she's inviting me to come and do book signings up there. I'm going with a, a girlfriend of mine and we're going to have a we, we've been trying to plan something to a girl's weekend and so we said let's do it so we're going to do that and okay. then the next thing I want to do mm-hmm.
0: is I want I want a made-for-TV movie yes yeah. yes yes yes
1: of course your story yeah. is yeah. absolutely
0: yes Oh, this is going to happen. I know it will. Yes, I'm- let's
1: let's put it out there. So anybody yeah. listening who wants to produce this, well, you know get what? As with a of
0: fact, um, This is another
2: story that's absolutely God sent. Uh, I got a call from a woman. Her name is Marcia Maria McKenna, and she said uh, she well we became friends on Instagram. She said I think we're related, and I sent her something she said I'm from New Orleans and I think my father's your cousin and so I sent her a message back and I said um what is what was your mother's name and what is your father's last name and she said um Joycelyn my mother and Dixon McKenna was my father now he's my first cousin I write about him in the book no way really so, but the but the most amazing thing is she just received an Emmy for a short story that she did called The Ark of
0: South Central. Okay. I think I we've got, got our <laughs> I, I've,
2: just, I've got my brother already. Yes.
1: Oh my goodness. Oh, so we're
2: in a wonderful oh, relationship.
1: So awesome. My Auntie you. is
2: her grandmother. I mean, it's unbelievable. We talk about family like you know, it was yesterday.
1: Mm.
0: So um anyway you know iris when you put good stuff out into the universe good stuff comes back to you and so to me you are an example of that and i want to thank you so much for joining us today for sharing your story and inspiring us with uh your fearlessness your hardworking spirit and you said earlier in the podcast as we got started i love this message you said stay open to life be willing to take risks and let your adversities lift you up, not drag you down. And I really think I think we should all just let those words kind of sit with us <laughs> as that's we go through the day today. Close.
2: That's an excellent closing. Yes. And,
0: um, and just,
2: that's, that's what took me to all the different places that I found myself and, and finding success in each and every one of them and finally living the life that I've always wanted to live and it's wonderful. That so is you are no wonder
1: that is such an inspiration iris and you know we just can't wait we will be watching we can't wait to see what you do next
0: <laughs> thank you
2: thank you to both marys it's been a delight absolutely an, an experience that i'll always remember
1: oh thank you oh thanks iris <laughs>
0: likewise I love women doing things like you're doing well thank you and uh cheers uh, to you and sister yes. of hooray iris yes. thank you thank you cheers, cheers. Thank you, Mary. Well, that's going to do it for our show today. What an incredible conversation with Iris Rideau, a true trailblazer and inspiration. And we wanted to let you, our listeners, know that her book, her memoir is available now. It is called From White to Black, One Life Between Two Worlds.
1: Right. And I will post all of this in our show notes on Zip Zip Hooray podcast.com. And please, uh, if you like what you've heard, if you like our podcast, whatever platform you're listening on, please go in and give us a rating, give us a review. It helps other people find Sip Sip Hooray to listen to. And we'd really appreciate the support. And you can follow us on social media. We are Sip Sip Hooray Podcast on Instagram and Facebook and Sip Sip Hooray, the number one on Twitter.
0: Okay, Mary Orlin, well, that was, the kind of podcast where i want to go out there and change the world so me uh... too so
1: <laughs> let's raise the glass to that sip sip hooray sip sip hooray <laughs>